you open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8. Spell prayer. Fathers, we continue our worship, and as we now open your word to look more in depth at the things that you have said, we thank you, Father, again for the book of Ecclesiastes. We thank you, Lord, that there's a book that does deal with many of the dark and somber issues and the vexing questions that man has because of what he sees in life. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to really have a good grasp and understanding of what it is that the author is speaking about. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to feel the emotion and the angst that he feels as he talks about the issues that he raises. We also ask, Lord, that you help us to be able to clearly see how Christ is the answer. Now, Father, this is not just some kind of a band-aid that we put on things or maybe some kind of a feel-good type of philosophy, but, Lord, that you have truly dealt with these problems and you have resolved these problems in a very real way, in a very rich way and beneficial way. And so we ask, Lord, that you would bless our time in your word this morning. And as always, Father, we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, beginning in verse 10. It reads, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also was vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before, the, before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However, uh, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is uh, like a lot of passages in Ecclesiastes. This is one of those that you need to take your time to work through to really grasp what it is that he's trying to communicate. Remember that as we speak of Solomon, or as we call him Koheleth, which is the, the, the proper term as far as the author goes. I know that uh, we've mentioned before that many of the Bibles say he's called the preacher, and that we think, we think about preachers today, and that's not what he is in this passage. He's one who's gathering together all of this information, looking at what he sees. He sees it uh, as a man who has at least put God on the back burner. He's trying to understand it as a man, and he, there's a lot of problems, and there's things that bother him a great deal. And it's very perplexing. And so he, it renders life meaningless. He's unable to grasp what it is that's going on. He, he believes there should be meaning, but he's not getting it. It's like trying to grab hold of smoke or vapor. 
So Geheleth, what he does here in this passage, he's developing the theme of delayed judgment on the basis of what he's been observing in life. Traditional wisdom teaches that there is a time and place for judgment and justice, but what we observe often contradicts this, and we see justice endlessly delayed. Again, in verse 10, when he says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place, and they were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Solomon has noticed that when someone evil is buried, that that individual used to be an individual who frequented the temple. But being in the temple or going to church or whatever the case may happen to be didn't seem to affect their wickedness one bit. In other words, these individuals were major hypocrites. Minor hypocrites, major hypocrites. Yes, they're major hypocrites. We also, we also ourselves are aware of many who live without any sense that God is in heaven. No sense that they are just mere creatures on the earth. And judgment did not come to them while they were alive. And now they are forgotten. And seemingly, they will not be remembered for what they were really like. That happens today. There'd be an individual, let's say, who's on death row. He's been on death row for, let's say, 10, 15, 20 years. You may read, they may recount the crimes that this individual committed that put him on death row. And you have individuals advocating that he should not be put to death. And there are some, when they're being interviewed, they seem to hint at this, maybe some might even say this, that because it's been so long, that somehow it's like it's been enough. Normally, maybe always, those individuals, themselves or someone that's close to them, they don't know anyone who's experienced what that man or woman, but usually that man's victims experienced. When you, when you begin to think about the details and about the suffering that individual inflicted on others, that kind of renews that emotion that justice needs to be done. And in this sense, it seems that this individual sitting before this, who even though he's been in prison, it doesn't seem that he's really paid for the atrocities that he's committed. And it, and it bothers people a great deal, especially when it comes to those crimes that are against children or the crimes that are against a large number of people. Those who are victimized by criminals or what have you, a lack of justice is a big deal. It's a stumbling block for those who are sensitive. It is something that can eat away at you. I wonder if you've ever heard the true story of the Avengers, not the comic book. But there is a group of individuals that was called the Avengers. I think there may have been as many as 50 of them total uh, that worked together on this. It's a story that over the past, I think, uh, 10 years has come out concerning World War II. In 1945, as you are aware, Europe's Jewish population had been tortured and had been decimated. And there was a man by the name of Abba Kavner, who had later become one of Israel's eminent poets. And he united 50 survivors who had cheated death in the ghettos and the concentration camps. And he called them the Kam, or the Avengers. They were determined to not let the Holocaust pass without retribution. Only a tiny fraction of those who were complicit in one of the greatest crimes in human history were ever tried or punished. And the Avengers were going to fix that. 
they concocted an astonishing plan. What they were going to do, what they believed justice demanded, is that six million of their mothers and fathers and children were executed. Six million Germans needed to die. Didn't matter. Men, women, children, randomly, six million needed to die. And they had a plan. They were going to poison the water supply in Munich, Nuremberg, Hamburg, and Frankfurt. And they would then be successful in killing indiscriminately over a million people. The plan had been hidden for a long time because it failed. The British police, as these individuals planned this out, they even helped to develop a poison uh, that would dissolve in water and be able to infect the water supply as they wanted and bring about death. But the British military police intercepted Kobner when he was journeying back to Europe with the poison. He was able somehow to dispose, of the, uh, to dispose of the poison, so they never captured that, but he was still put in jail or in prison for four months. Somehow the Avengers had been betrayed. The mass murder plan was then abandoned. So then they moved to Plan B. Plan B was to poison the SS officers who were imprisoned in Nuremberg, Nuremberg and Dachau, infiltrating the prison's bakeries, and of course, they, I was watching a documentary and they talk about how they figured out which bakeries were delivering bread to this place and they were able to break in at night uh, when the bread was rising and while, the, while these loaves of bread were, were rising, they had this uh, arsenic mixture and they had the paintbrush and they were painting the back of all of these, uh, all this bread that was going to be delivered to the, uh, to the prisons. And the bread was delivered to the prisons. And when uh, those uh, inmates began to eat the bread... Uh, in April 20, on April 23rd, 1946, the New York Times reported that 2,283 German prisoners of, wars, of war had been poisoned and were sick. No one's been able to discover how many people died from that. There were reports that a few hundred died. There were reports that maybe more than a few hundred died, but they didn't want that report to get out because of various sensitivities in the world at that time. And so it's unclear even to this day. But this story that was unearthed recently reveals what many think is the Achilles heel of Christianity. That because we proclaim we believe in a good and powerful God, then how do we explain all of the evil in the world? And when you look at incidents like the Holocaust, where you see six million individuals who are slaughtered for no other reason than the fact that they were Jewish, and then if you were to go back a little further and look at the numbers of individuals who were handicapped, those who were gypsies, those who were prisoners of war, who had medical experiments done on them and they were slaughtered just because of who they were by the Germans. And then when you look at the number of individuals who were caught and the individuals who were put on trial and punished for that, it's a very small number. The atrocities that took place are very difficult to grasp emotionally. That's why I do think it's important that if you ever have the opportunity, if you go to Washington, D.C., to visit the Holocaust Museum, because that is their intent. They want to make sure that no one forgets, because we want to forget. We don't want to think about that kind of thing. That kind of thing goes on all the time. Maybe not by one group to one group in that sense, but the injustices that take place take place on a daily basis throughout the world. It is unnerving 
And it is something that would, would, could cause us to maybe even lose sleep if you became intimately aware of all the many, many stories that take place every day of the atrocities that one human being performs in another human being without there being any sense of justice or anyone paying for what has happened. There's also a practical daily problem with all of this. Verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. In the Christian Standard Version, it reads this way, because the sentence against a criminal act is not carried out quickly, therefore the heart of the people is filled with the desire to commit crimes. Delayed judgment at any level encourages evil. It encourages evil locally. I think it even encourages evil on a cosmic level. I have spoken with many, many inmates through the years, especially when I was a chaplain. I've, I've had discussions about their lives and when they began to break the law and how their life has gone. And I, don't know, I, I think many of you might remember this. There was a story uh, back in the 90s, I believe, of a young man in Singapore. He was an American. He was arrested because he had been uh, spray-painting cars on the street. And for that act of vandalism, he was going to be caned. And when that hit the news, there was this huge uproar. People in America couldn't believe that this individual was going to be caned for what he had, for what he had done. And there was all this, this work being done to try to free him from Singapore because of the evil that they were going to commit against this young man. And uh, I remember that when, when this was going on, there was a story where uh, there was an American reporter, and he went to go speak to, I believe it was the chief of police, uh, or one of the chiefs uh, of the police there in Singapore. And as he was interviewing him, he was, uh, you know, they got into the idea of caning and, and how they did it and, and what it did to the individuals. And the police officer was talking about how the crime rate was very low there uh, and that kind of thing. And the reporter was really unmoved. And so finally the reporter leaned in uh, to the desk of the, of the police captain and said, well, many of us believe that what you do here is very, very cruel and barbaric. And there was some silence. And the captain leaned forward and he said, my friend, he said, there are many people here who know that you Americans are cruel and barbaric. And the reporter says, why do you say that? He said, I'll do better than telling you why I say that. I will show you. And so they got into the, the police officer's car and they went on a little trip out into the country. While they were going, the police captain talked to the young man about uh, our history of individuals who are convicted of being a serial rapist and how many of those individuals, at least at that time, after a certain number of years in prison, are released and how high the percentages of those individuals who once again victimize women before they are caught or killed. He says, that to me seems to be very cruel and brutal. Because you know from history and you know from psychology that these individuals will do this again. And yet you let them go free. He says, I want to introduce you to a man. And so there's a man that was out in the field working and the police officer called him over. And the man came over and he spoke to him and in, uh, in his language and told him basically to turn around and to bare his back and he dropped his shirt and his back was just, I mean, it, you could, the scar tissue that was there, you could tell that he had received a, uh, an unbelievably massive beating. And the police officer looked at the reporter and said, this man was convicted of raping a young woman 
and the penalty for raping a young woman is 80 lashes. And you know that when we cane an individual, that if they pass out from the pain, that we stop, we revive them, and then we continue. So that he must be conscious for uh, the entire time. He says, what I, have, what I can guarantee you is, this man has never raped again. No one who's ever been convicted of rape in our country has ever done it a second time. He says, so who are the cruel ones? What can the reporter say? And yet when we look here at this passage, what does it say? If there's delayed judgment at any level, it encourages evil. So I asked the inmates, because I relayed that story to them, and I asked the inmates one day, I had a large Bible study, and I asked them, how many of you, when the very first time that you were arrested, if you were caned, how many of you think it would make a difference in your life? Almost every hand went up. And so I asked them a question. I said, why? Why would that make a difference? And one guy blurted out immediately, because then we would have known you were serious. And I asked all the other guys if they agreed with that. And they all did. It was amazing. That one brief moment of brutal honesty, what they all said was, what they were telling us, what they were communicating, was the ease with which we apply the law at times. In their mind, they believe we're not serious. It's interesting. Very interesting. Moving on, it says in verse 12, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. What Solomon is doing here is he is, he is contrasting between, between what he sees and between what he knows. How do we resolve this contradiction? You see, the contradiction he's pointing out is this. this we, what we see is one thing. We see delayed judgment. We see delayed justice. Yet we know, because Proverbs says, it will not go well for the wicked. They will be judged. Won't they? It seems to be the question that Solomon is getting at. In fact, in the midst of this quandary, then Solomon says in verse 15, I commend or I recommend joy. Wait a minute. He tells us what he sees. There's delayed judgment. There's delayed justice. He says what he knows, which is the complete opposite. He hasn't seen that, but he says that he knows that the wicked, that they will not have prolonged days and they will be, they, they will be punished for what they've done. And that's not happening. And then he says, oh, I recommend joy. Joy here is a word which simply means rejoicing, gladness, pleasure. It refers to the reality, the experience, and manifestation of joy and gladness. It refers to a celebration of something with joyful and cheerful activities. In other words, it simply means to be glad. But then after he says that, in verse 16, he says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. So what he's saying by that is, is on the one hand, he makes this observation. On the other hand, he says what he knows. Then he says he recommends joy. And now he says he can't sleep. 
This is a disturbing thing because he says he applies his heart to know the business of earth. What is he talking about? What he's been talking about. What he's been seeing. He sets his heart to understand this and he's unable to find sleep. It bothers him. It disturbs him so much that it prevents him from getting any sleep. And part of the problem that he's having is what he says in verse 17. He says, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. You see, what Solomon says in verse, 15, verse 17, when he says, Then I saw all the work of God, Solomon believes that because of all that he has observed, and because of all that he has researched, that somehow he has observed every work of God. In other words, Solomon is guilty of hubris. It is clearly an exaggeration of pride and self-confidence. Why? Because it is arrogant to imagine that the works of God are confined to what someone can observe. Therefore, then, his information in which to draw his conclusion from is limited. That's why he says, what does he say here? He says, no matter how much a man may toil in seeking the answer to what he's talking about, he's not going to find it out. Even if it's a wise man who claims to know, he can't discover it. He can't bring these two things together and make them fit together. He can't figure it out. Solomon doesn't resolve the issue. He just simply says, we'll be glad, and then says he's losing sleep. Let me read to you quickly from 2 Peter chapter 4. 2 Peter, I mean, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. It says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them in the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak of evil dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord, because these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak of the evil of the things they do not understand." and will utterly perish in their own corruption, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. And then in verse 20, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the, day, the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. What we have here is this reminder that those who do evil, in particular the evil teachers or false teachers that Peter's been talking about, they will be punished. The reason why Peter writes this is because he understands the frustration of those who have seen these false teachers, and these false teachers are not being punished. 
They're living in luxury. They're speaking evil about things they don't know anything about. And they seem to be doing just fine. And this bothers people. This can even begin to cause people to begin to wonder about the goodness of God or the truth of God. How they should live themselves. And here the reminder is, is, oh, by the way, this is what's going to happen. And then he goes back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and says, that is an illustration for you to remember that judgment is coming. It is sure. It will take place. So when we think of this unresolved issue that Solomon raises, the unresolved issue of those who are doing wicked, who seem to be doing just fine, and even to the point that when they are dead and gone, we tend to forget what they were really all about and what they did. We don't see justice. It seems they've gotten away with it. The scripture says that the wicked will not prolong his days. Well, look like to me he prolonged his days because he didn't die until he was in his 80s or his 90s. He talks about those who are righteous and how they will be rewarded. And Solomon is saying, I don't really see them being rewarded because they, what happens to, the, to, to what should happen to the wicked is happening to those who are righteous. And what should be the reward of the righteous is happening to the wicked. No one can figure this out. Even if a wise man puts himself to the task of figuring this out, he can't. He, the, 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 the answer is beyond him. And that's why he says, it's just meaningless. There should be meaning. I can't get it. And so there's this hopelessness. And we see the same thing today. The exact same thing. There's a few who pay, but many don't. Especially when you look at it on a, in a global way. When you look at it in a global way, the, the lack of justice that prevails is absolutely incredible. And so with this, what the Christian needs to ask themselves is where does the gospel come into play with all of this? The death Burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ secures the future judgment of those who are evil. It is evidence. It is, in a sense, a surety that judgment will take place because Christ is alive and he will return and he brings judgment with him. We as believers look forward without fear because our sins have been judged. Justice has been done in our sense, because the evil that we should pay for has been paid for by Christ. We have been punished. We have served our sentence through Christ, who is our substitute. What we do know from Scripture is that justice will prevail. What relieves the tension between what we observe? What does it that relieves the tension between what we observe, which is that justice does not prevail, that the wicked live a long time, that they enjoy life, that they are carefree, that they have no fear of reprisals or judgment, and what we know by faith that there will be a judgment, that justice really will prevail, is the gospel itself. The burden of carrying out judgment and making the world just does not ultimately fall to us. It falls to Jesus. We live in a day and age that, which is averse to theology. And many have lost sight of divine vengeance. It's a doctrine that doesn't really fit in well in our society. We live in a soft, therapeutic, get-your-best-life-now kind of Christianity. There's a lot of blessing in that kind of a system, but very little justice. Christ almost becomes a brand consultant to the upperly mobile this doctrine is also largely missing in the kind of garden-variety Christianity that is offered to many today. A Christianity which promises equity and grace and better social conditions and radical acts, but very little judgment of evil by the avenging king. 
Christ ends up for many being nothing more than a community organizer with a gift for resistance and activism. Such emaciated views or visions of Christian faith may still, may still speak of divine love and Christ's cross, but they fail to see that the cross is neither a mere display of affection nor an improvement program. What the, Christ, what the cross of Jesus Christ shows is God unleashing grace in Christ as God upholds justice through Christ. The effective death of Christ for sinners does not cancel future judgment. The atonement actually guarantees that God will one day punish the unrepentant. The atonement shows us what the Lord will do soon without a perfect substitute to bear his wrath. Until that fateful day, Caesar bears the sword. The state wages just war and carries out uh, retributive justice, even justice unto death. Christians testify to the goodness of such common grace. We uphold standards of right and wrong knowing that God has not gone soft. God has not canceled the need for all accounts to be settled with him. One day Christ will return. Justice is delayed, but it's closing in. We have been delivered. The message we bear is to bring the message of Christ to others. Remember what it says in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And sometimes we may hesitate to share the gospel because we don't want someone to get saved, because we want them to be punished for what they've done. It's been a long time since I've shared this story with you. The first time that I was faced with this kind of a, an issue. It was back in the 1980s. I had been a jail chaplain for about six months. Um, thinking I was 26 or 27 years of age. I was at the jail. It was late. It was about 7 p.m. There was a young man that, was, that had been arrested. He had been in the jail for two days. He was desperate to speak to me. I didn't know him. The officers told me that he was just really frazzled. And, uh, but they didn't tell me anything about him, just that he wanted to speak to me. So we went into a, into a room. And as we got into the room, he began, I mean, we didn't even have, I didn't even have time to say hello. He just, he just became uncorked, and he just began to tell me about a little bit about his life, but mostly about his crime, and mostly about what he had done. And what he revealed as we sat in that room was that he had raped this lady. He picked up a hitchhiker, and he raped her. And he was, I guess, feeling guilt from it. I don't know, but he was just telling me all these things. The whole time he's talking... I'm having an argument in my head. It's my job as a chaplain, my responsibility as a Christian, to share the gospel. I don't want to do it. I don't want him to hear the gospel. I don't want him to get saved. I have such faith in the power of God, I was afraid that God would save him. And I did not want that to happen. I didn't. And I sat there and I listened to him tell me this story. It was hard. I didn't even know who the lady was. I wanted to hit him. The room we were in, there's this double glass window and there's officers on the other side in the, in the control that controls all the doors for the jail in this little jail that we were in. 
I'm convinced that if I had hit them, they wouldn't have come in. They would have said they had seen nothing. I probably would have gotten away with it if I'd hit him several times. To my astonishment, when he finished, my mouth opened. And I shared the gospel of Christ with him. To my amazement, he dropped to his knees and believed in Christ. I told him that now that you're a Christian, Christians don't lie. And I went through a long list of things that Christians do. He said, oh, absolutely. I don't know if he meant it or not. But I know what happened. Three days later, he went to court to enter his plea. He pleaded guilty. Told his lawyer that he was a Christian now. He deserved to be punished for what he had done. It was an amazing thing that revealed to me how far my heart is from the heart of God. Because all I could think of was he needed to suffer. And then to realize that Christ suffered, that God actually punished Christ for what this man had done, puts the amazing back in the grace. Absolutely incredible. It's not up to me or you to ensure that justice is ultimately done. We do our best in the day and age in which we live. We need to remember that we have been given this gift of the gospel of Christ that has saved our souls and we are to preach to only the undeserving because it's only the undeserving that are out there. There is no one who's deserving of the gospel. That's the answer to the dilemma that Solomon was experiencing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask, Lord, that as believers you would forgive us of the hardness of our hearts. Because, Father, there are times that we have great joy when those who are evil suffer. We still desire for those who are evil to suffer. We often claim, Lord, that it's because of our sense of justice, and in a large way that's true, but sometimes there's still too much of a personal satisfaction in seeing those who are guilty suffer. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to increase our love for others and to realize, Lord, that those that we see who are guilty of atrocities are no more guilty than we are and are no more deserving of judgment than we are and are in desperate need to the same degree that we are of the gospel of Christ. And so, Father, we ask that you would cause us to rejoice in our salvation, to rejoice in the God of our salvation. And, Lord, that we would allow and that we would ask for you to continue to allow the gospel to work on our hearts, to soften our hearts, that we may have a great love for others. 
that we will, yes, see the pain and the hurt that is in others, but also, Father, to see the pain and the hurt and the desperate need that is in the lives of those who even take advantage of others. Help us to be strong and gentle, firm and loving at the same time. We thank you, Lord, for the power of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that that is the answer to the dilemma that we face. We thank you, Lord, that justice will prevail. We thank you, Lord, that judgment does come. And we are grateful, Lord, that you are the one who is the judge and not us. And, Father, we are also grateful and we praise your name that you have already judged us for our sins in the person of Christ. And it is in his name we come and we say thank you. Amen.